Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus, and it's a pleasure to have with me today, David Quisenberry, and we'll refer to him as Quiz. Hi, Quiz. Hey, how's it going? Quiz manages security ads approved, which makes a suite of e-discovery software applications for enterprise in-house counsel. He serves as the chapter president of the Portland, Oregon OWASP chapter, which involves working with other chapter leaders to deliver meaningful training sessions, chapter meetings, podcasts, and mentorship opportunities to their chapter members and guests. He also served on the board of directors and executive committees of the Dougie Center, which helps families through their grief process, and the City Club of Portland, a local nonprofit dedicated to civic engagement and citizen-led research into public policy issues. When he's not working on security stuff or engaging the local community, he likes to explore new board games with friends, crack open a book, or even sometimes venture into writing down a thing or two. So Quiz, why don't we get started? How did you get started with security? Well, I did not take the the typical path into security. So I did a career transition. I had about 10 years um, where I worked as a wealth manager for Merrill Lynch and then eventually started my own firm uh, with a friend, Overland Park Wealth Management. And so I did that for, for quite a while. And then in, I guess it was around 2016, 2017, made a career transition, decided to go into, um, at first, application development um, with a, a gear towards security-mindedness and development. And while I was doing that, um, it just became more and more clear to me that I was interested in, in the security side of things. That's awesome. And then you were at Merrill Lynch. So were you based out of one of the, the flagship locations like Pennington, New Jersey or somewhere else? Oh, no, no. So I, yeah, so originally I worked at uh, BNY Mellon, uh, Dreyfus Investments in New York City. So I was in New York City for a bit and then moved to Portland uh, with my family and um, started a wealth advisory practice at Merrill here in Portland, Oregon. Excellent. Well, you know, wealth management and cybersecurity seem like polar opposites when it comes to a career <laughs> choice. Uh, so would love to understand from you your perspective in terms of any challenges that you faced when making that transition. And are there things that you would maybe have done differently this time around having gone through that process? Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's interesting, like life, the decisions you make, the careers you go down, the things you do, Everything's interrelated and everything's connected. And and you know, if hindsight's twenty twenty, if you could go back and and you know stay with the CS program when you're in college and not fizzle out because you were tired of daydreaming and code all day, life would be different. But I would say you know there there are some differences, but there's also a lot of similarities. So in wealth management, you deal a lot with risk tolerance. And similar to companies, when someone's just starting off as an investor, they don't have a lot of money, they're much more willing to take on risk and do things that a more established person or family or, or trust might not do with their money because they, they you know, have a, either a fiduciary standard to, to make sure that they uh, invest it wisely for all the beneficiaries or, or they just you know, have $10 million and they don't want to lose that $10 million. And so similar to companies, as you know, as companies grow, as companies mature, in the beginning, when they're just building out their foundation of revenue, 
security might not be as front and center to a lot of the decisions that get made. But as companies grow, as they become bigger and bigger and bigger, and especially like this approved, we work with a lot of enterprise corporations. At that point in the game, security and risk tolerance is, is much different. And they want to understand all the risks that goes into each, each decision they make as a business. So risk tolerance is a similar thing. Another thing that's very similar between the world of wealth management and the world of cybersecurity is always reading, always studying. So as a wealth manager, you're, you're constantly keeping up to speed on all the trends with global investment flows, global economics, um, mutual funds, for example, you know, when you're analyzing a mutual fund, if it's a small mutual fund, like $100 million or $150 million, their performance is going to look a lot different than a large mutual fund that might be managing $50 billion. Because with $50 billion, it's very hard to find investments that meet all the criteria that they want for the rate of return they're looking for. So a lot of analysis is a wealth manager. And then that, you know, that obviously translates a lot into the security world where you're, you're reading things all the time. And then lastly, convincing others to take action. So as a wealth manager, there's this tension, especially if you're working with families, where you want them to save as much as possible so that they can have a lot of money in retirement for their kids, for all their charities they care about, things like that. They want to live life. And they, they do care about their future self, but they also care about the sports teams their kids play on and their kids going to the college they want to go to and the new car that looks nice in the driveway and all those other things. And so there's these tensions and you're having to convince someone to spend their dollars one way versus the other. And it's very similar to, the, to security work with developers, with product owners, product managers. It's a constant game of understanding all the various priorities and, and working together to identify that kind of sweet spot of paying down security debt, staying on top of future security debt, as well as getting other features built and other other things that, that drive the business. But you were asking, what's the most challenging part? So the most challenging part is one, establishing that foundation of knowledge, and then two, keeping up. The, the security domains, like to be an information security professional, you have to understand a little about a lot, um, but then to get good, you have to go deep. And there's so many different domains. And I'm like a Labrador in the park with a bunch of squirrels running around me. It's everything's interesting. You want to run after everything. But if you're not careful, they turn into white rabbits and can can suck you in. My advice to younger people who aren't in management, um, who really you know like to get close to the metal and like to really dig into things is, and it's hard. It's hard when you're young and you haven't tried things on, but you want to identify early as best you can. What do you want to specialize in? We live in a world of, of specialization. And to really understand things, you can't learn everything. And you have to stay in that domain, maybe one or two domains. So yeah, staying up on things and, and building out that foundational knowledge. But I think the, the skills of reading and research and whatnot, and being able to read things quickly and understand it is, is something that transfers a lot. You touched on something very briefly at the beginning of that answer. And that was around, you know, the computer science classes kind of boring you and and not being interested. I have a, a tangential question. Do you think the way computer science and engineering classes are and the curriculum are created today, are they disincentivizing people from taking that route and actually going the technical route? Is it too boring? Is it too challenging? You know, is it education that's actually one of the bottlenecks that's creating a shortage in security professionals today? Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know. So when I, when I took CS classes, we didn't have Git. <laughs> it was a long time ago. You know, I think my first language was Pascal. And uh, yeah, we, you know, some of that, some of that stayed around. But I do, I do think there's something, or at least there was when I was in college, there was something to how things were taught and the ethos of the department that only fit with certain types of personalities or certain types of people. And, and also like back in the day when I was in it, you would actually go into a computer lab and do all the work. I don't know how they do it now. 
I do just tangentially know many people in the Portland OWASP community that do a lot of lessons and teaching with the various colleges and community colleges in Portland. And so if, if you ever wanted to have more conversations around what they see. But I know, like I know SANS is doing a lot with integrating into education platforms and different schools to try to get closer. I know there's a lot of like women in code uh, initiatives to try to make it less great white men in a room being geeky. But my background, so before before going to college, like I grew up when internet just started hitting homes. So I was super fortunate. I had a curious dad who did nothing in tech, but was interested in tech. And so we had, you know, the, I think 9,600 baud modem to start, you know, and, and would play around with uh, bulletin boards or connecting an AOL. And then eventually, you know, Warcraft 1 came out that had a multiplayer and then Warcraft 2 and then Diablo. And, and that actually kind of goes back to the heart of my interest in security. I remember back in the day, you know, hacking Diablo so you could max out your weapon and make it kill people in one shot or DDoSing the players you play with so that you could steal all their gear when you're fighting a boss and, you know, playing around with back orifice and, and whatnot, visiting my sister in college and hijacking all her friends' computers. <laughs> no, that's fair. Well, let's talk a little bit more. I'm just very curious to understand since you made that transition. What were some of the things you were doing when you started cybersecurity? So I understand how the transition went and you wanted to learn. And, you know, it's such a diverse field, as you mentioned. There are so many areas to focus on. Yeah. What was it for you that helped you get your foot through the door? Yeah, no, great question. So I started like teaching myself some things using online resources like Coursera to explore tech and to explore different paths of careers in tech while I was a wealth advisor kind of at night and on the weekends. And I realized quickly that the only way I was going to make a career transition was to, so to speak, burn the boat and take the beach. So I transitioned my customers, my clients to my partner and worked to deal with him for him to manage them and, and left the business and went to a code school. And so I did a code school for six or nine months, I forget now. But while I was doing that, my friend David Merrick, who's a, a senior software engineer here in Portland, he introduced me to OWASP. And at the time, our Portland OWASP chapter, which had been going for quite a while, was a group of, I don't know, 10 to 25 people that would meet monthly and have kind of rotate at the various companies and have lessons around secure code practices and, and whatnot. And so I was just eating it up. In addition, David was always trying to play around with whatever apps I was building and hack them with SQL injection or cross-site scripting or whatnot. So I was lucky to, to kind of identify early as a developer that I wanted to do things securely and that security mattered. Additionally, I started working as a, a backend developer at Daylight Studio, which is a web agency here in Portland that deals a lot with the wine industry and, and other industries and had the privilege of working on a, a pretty significant application for a multiple year engagement. And during that, I, I over time took ownership of the backend, took ownership of the AWS cloud, and took their data and the security of their application very seriously. And so as I was trying to do my best to secure the cloud and secure our application and prevent unauthorized access, because it was a very significant business application, I just I had to dig in deeper and deeper and deeper in security. And, and it's kind of like once you see it, you can't not see it. And it was very clear to me that this isn't something I can just do part time. I need to, to get more time at it. So how would you say this initial hands-on experience helps you today as a manager in InfoSec? I think the biggest thing is empathy. So, you know, whether it's from my life as a wealth advisor or life as a developer and even, even kind of wearing the product owner hat some in that role because it was a smaller shop, having empathy of, of what everyone else is doing really, really helps. I'm understanding that everyone's got a lot of pressures day to day on their role and their job and that, you know, the the best thing we can do is is increment and identify, I, I joke, you know, uh, what's the Bill Murray movie? Uh, 
what about Bob baby steps the elevator? What's the what's the incremental thing we can make do to make things better? And, and what's an easy win that we can orchestrate so that we can celebrate it and feel like we're all on and be on the same side and not be seen as adversaries? Awesome. No, that's that's definitely helpful and insightful. Well, you know, last we spoke, you mentioned a little bit about how you were taking some unique approaches to better collaborate across different teams, not just security within the organization. Can you share with us what approach you're taking? Are there things that worked well? And also, are there things that didn't work well that led you to your current approach? Yeah, I'd like to think I didn't, you know, burn my fingers too much or skin my knees too much, but I probably probably have and don't even realize how much I have. One of the philosophies I have about most things is relationships first. So in, you know, as approved, we're about 150 employees. We have about 50 to 60 developers and, you know, somewhere between like seven and 10, maybe 15 product managers, product owners, scrum masters. I have tried to be intentional in my time. So I started as an analyst, worked my way up to a security program manager, worked my way up to information security manager. I've tried to, to take the approach of being approachable, being available. So like if somebody slacks me a question or sends me an email, I will drop most of the time what I'm doing so that I can answer them in their moment. And you know, even when people get frustrated with me or frustrated with a ticket I wrote or something to take the opportunity, take a step back and be like, okay, we have attention right now. Like they're actually thinking about this stuff. What's not clear? How do, you know? Getting to the why. People want to know the why. If if I can accurately explain the why or get close to that, it's going to help so much. So I try to I try to take that relationship first approach. Identify those early wins and set you know as best I can clear expectations of what what is a compromise or what is a milestone, and then celebrate those when we hit them. I meet a lot with my people. So I have regular monthly meetings with the Scrum Masters, with the various Scrum leadership teams for our different products, for our engineering managers, for our project managers. Like I just try to have meetings with everybody and have it at a regular cadence so that it's expected, so that they can ask questions and know that we're going to have an opportunity to dig into things. We have a working agenda that both parties can add to. And I also try to give visibility into data and, and analytics. Um, Carolyn Wong wrote a really good book called Security Metrics for Beginners. So, you know, try to adhere to some of that stuff and give people meaningful understanding, kind of historical context kind of kind of data points. I will say like some of the some of the things that have surprised me and, and, and that are just awesome is I'm I'm now, you know, a year, year and a half in to my time as approved and it's going it's going awesome. We're really making huge strides in our program. And I'm having product owners um, and project managers reach out to me proactively without any effort on my part to get ahead of a new feature they're building. I'm thinking of a gal on my team, Michelle, and she, you know, just recently we're working on some some new APIs and she wanted to understand, okay, what what do we need to think about from a non-functional security requirement standpoint and, and what kind of tests can we write and to have product managers be thinking about this stuff before we even start cutting the tickets and the epics for things is so awesome. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely interesting. And the relationship piece is, is so critical. Uh, in so many organizations, we see that friction between relationship. It's almost like security against the rest of the team. Uh, so, you know, people and, you know, see security as a roadblock or as someone that's only going to slow them down or, you know, just the perception that security is a cost center. Yeah, yeah, it's a cost center. It's a hammer. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of the things you mentioned, right? The things you can do proactively to build security in. It's it's interesting because a lot of people don't realize if you're thinking that way from the get-go, your software and the quality of output that you have is already going to be better than uh, what it would be otherwise. Having better security also does result in better quality, better reliability, better performance, and and all of those things. So it's it's critical. The relationship piece is, is so key. 
and it's funny you mentioned Caroline. Um, have you met her before? Yeah, she's actually a friend of mine. I consider oh, her really? a friend. Uh, oh, we, wow. we worked yeah. together at Sigital when she was there. Yeah, no, I consider her a friend, and we still stay in touch regularly. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I wasn't part of it, but at the OWASP Portland podcast, we had her on earlier in the year. And yeah, now her book, I buy for all new hires. It's it's really great. <laughs> great. I'm going to have to ask her for a cut on that commission after this podcast. <laughs> um, well. Uh, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the OWASP chapter since you brought that up. Um, so, as the president of the OWASP chapter in Portland, you know, how did you get involved with the community, and what are some interesting things that you're doing that might be different from from other chapters? Yeah. Um, so I got I, I mentioned earlier, David Merrick uh, introduced me to the chapter. So I started going to the chapter meetings whenever I could, which was most of the time monthly when I was just in code school and then starting off as a as a developer. And then around, I think it was late 2018, 2019, I started being mentored by the previous chapter president, a guy named Ian Melvin, um, who's been an amazing mentor and really helped me along in my progress. And he he got me more involved on the on the leadership side. And what I found and what I would recommend to younger people um, or even you know mid-career people or, or anyone wanting to improve in their career and wanting to learn more about security is, is most OWASP chapters have leadership that have been laboring hard for a long time to keep the chapter going. And if you're willing to help them, either reading speakers or engaging membership or doing social media activity or thinking of topics, like everybody wants some help. And they'll open up, especially if you, if you prove yourself and that you you can deliver on it and you're not just talk, like they'll open up doors. And so what I found with with the Portland OS chapter was that as I started getting involved and, and just, I think it started with, I started giving some talks at some like JavaScript meetups in town. And I was thinking it would be great for more OWASP people to do a similar thing and to kind of be more, and Andrew Vanderstock who's now, who I think you also know, he's he's really all about that with the global leadership right now is we need to meet developers where they're at. I got involved with the leadership team, did a lot of work for Ian while he was president to, to make everything smooth and everything happen. A lot of the just grunt work, legwork. And then he was ready to, to hand the mantle over. And so I took over leadership in 2020. We did a lot early on, kind of in 2019, leading into 2020, where we were, you know, we built out a member or a mentorship program where we had, I think it was maybe 24 people, a variety of skill levels starting to, to meet regularly together and, and work on things that they wanted to work on. We really ramped up our social media presence, not just Twitter, but also LinkedIn for job types of things and using meetup.com to allow people to register before we hadn't done that. And so meetup really helped us uh, solidify returning visitors and, and provided an easy mechanism for people to RSVB to our monthly meetings. And so by the end of 2019, I think we were close to like 50, 60 people per meeting monthly. And we brought in a lot of great speakers. So um, Louis Arden, I think you know him, Adam Shostak came, others. So we're doing all this and then then COVID hits and um, all of a sudden we can't can't meet in person anymore. We got to do everything digitally uh, or virtually. So we were able to, to continue our path of monthly meetings. Sometimes it was every other month with COVID. Um, we also have another thing that we do as a local chapter, which is study, study sessions. So more hands-on. So it's a shorter, shorter session, like 15, 20 minute lab, and then 40 minutes or so of hands-on keyboard, you know, working with Burp Suite or Zap, um, Wireshark, you name it. We started a podcast in late 2019, and that's been super successful. I think we had 6,500 listens or so over this last year, and we're able to, and this is partly because of COVID, um, people weren't traveling as much, but Adam's done a couple podcasts with us. Bruce Schneier did a podcast with us. Caroline did a podcast with us, Tanya Jenkins. So yeah, lots of, lots of interesting people. Ron Wyden, Senator Ron Wyden did one with us. That was curious. And we're building out, so we're going, so this last year, we didn't do a training day. We do a training day. We have done a training day for the past four years before COVID hit. 
where it's about 250 people. We only charge $25 a session, so it's it's very affordable, and we bring in top quality trainers. So we're going to be doing that again in 2021, at least virtually. If the world opens up, we'll do it in person. And we're also exploring some other opportunities for training with other chapters. So trying to collaborate with with the chapters around us, and that's been going quite well. For those who haven't ever gone to a global AppSec conference, when those start opening up, volunteering at those is a, is a really great experience and a great way to meet people in the broader OWASP community. It's a great community of folks. I, I wouldn't be where I am today without my involvement with OWASP. No, and, and the whole networking aspect of it too, if you're interested in truly excelling and expanding your horizons in the security space, these community meetings and, and chapters really, really pay dividends in the long run. I know, you know, when I moved to Massachusetts the first time, one of my goals was to build a consulting practice in the region locally. And it was just me and we had uh, one person who was responsible for sales and the two of us had to build a team and we actually started attending the local OWASP chapter and the local security meetup uh, meetups that were happening. We started sponsoring them. We started, eventually we took over leadership of, of those chapters as well. And that grew and that community has grown significantly in the last 10 years that I've been here. And it's really helped me make some good connections. And, you know, it's also good marketing perspective just to get involved and you know, let your company get exposure that you're doing interesting things in the space. Yeah, it really helps with hiring too. So, you know, I've been involved now in OWASP for four years or so, and I had a, an analyst position open up on my team. And I think we had close to 75 applicants, you know, within within just a couple of weeks and, and probably a good 10 of them I knew personally from my involvement with OWASP. And so it really helps to know who people are as they're applying and what their skills are and what their people skills are. And, and so it, it's a good use of time. Absolutely. You touched on another topic, uh, which is near and dear to my heart, and I talk about it regularly, which is the importance of mentorship. And I've actually talked to multiple people on this podcast, and I've even written about it recently about you know the importance of having good mentors in the cybersecurity space and why it's important to have mentors that can help guide you in your career path. I'd be curious to get your perspective on any guidance you have on how to choose a mentor that's right for you. <laughs> Well, I mean, the first thing I would say is don't have one mentor. And I, 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 I kind of think of it almost as a personal board of directors. But I know for myself, like what I want is I want people from across the spectrum. So business leaders, uh, engineering leadership, security leadership, different types of security leadership. Like I want, I want four to 10 people that I talk with probably quarterly-ish, you know, some people more often. But I want to be able to, when I'm having a hard time with something at work or, you know, a moral decision I need to make or just trying to understand what is normal or what is acceptable, to have multiple perspectives to bounce it off, to know I'm not crazy. One of the big things that I always try to push with my mentors is, you know, what are you learning? What are you reading? What are the things that you go back to time and time again? There's a couple sayings that I always think about, and that is, uh, if you rake, you get leaves. If you dig, you get diamonds. So, you know, where, where can you dig to get diamonds? But yeah, so with, with mentors, I try to have a lot of people, I try to be real with them and make it clear that, you know, this is only between us. And I also try to pay it forward. So if there are people out there and I have people, people that interviewed for my role that I didn't hire, I want to help people and lots of people have helped me. Oh, another great book is a book by Keith Ferrazzi. I read this a long time ago. It's called Never Eat Alone. And it's all about how people basically like to help people. And, you know, we're all hesitant to ask for advice or ask for help, but the most successful people ask for help all the time. And yeah, as humans, we like to help each other. And so his whole thing is, you know, find out what you want to do 
and where you want to get, and then build a relationship action plan to move your way there. But he's also really big on you need to build your network and you need to build those those mentorships and, and or mentors and all those things before you really need it. So if you're in a job hunt and you're trying to build your mentorship or mentor platform at that point in time, that's going to be hard to do. But if you're in career and you do it and you don't need to use it for a couple of years, by the time you do need to use it, those people will know that you're genuine and know who you really are and they'll be more than willing to help you. Yeah. And it's, you know, the one thing that I touch on is you have to find someone that you're comfortable being vulnerable with, right? I think that's the reason why most people are so hesitant to ask questions, because it, it, it could easily be interpreted as a sign of weakness. You know, your people can very easily see you, perceive you asking a question as being something you just don't know, you don't understand, something you lack. So you need to find that person that you're comfortable being vulnerable with. And ultimately, that's where you can really have some open discussions and, and really dig you know, and look for those diamonds, as you said, instead of raking for leaves, right? Instead of having superficial surface level conversations, you have to be able to have deep conversations, learn from each other and yeah, ask for help. You know, something you mentioned is it, it's, it hits very close to home, uh, which is before starting here at NetSpy during my job hunt, the fact that I had built such good relationships with so many people, my mentors were there and available to guide me through that process when I was, when I needed help in weighing my various options that I had uh, from an opportunity perspective, or even before having opportunities wanting to discuss, you know, I want to do X, but as an outsider with more experience than me, where do you think I need to be focusing on? What should I be considering? What am I not thinking about? And it's a vulnerable position to be in, but that paid such good dividends, allowing me to really get multiple perspectives, learn, and in a way kind of accelerate my experience by learning from others' mistakes and others' guidances to help me get to where I am today. So very fortunate, very lucky, very thankful to my mentors uh, for, for being there and, and helping me through that process. You brought up that book that you liked, you know, I know you're an avid reader, so would love to hear from you. Do you have a favorite book? And, and why is it your favorite? I do. And I'll, I'll tell you that before I say that, though, I, I do want to just hit on one other thing from the mentorship angle. And that is one of the things that I see uh, when I talk to especially younger people coming out of college, but I think it's true for any human is we're not always the best at following up. And when you're working with a mentor and they give you some advice and they say, you know, you ask them, if you were me, what would you do on this type of thing? And they say, here, you know, here's the path or get this credential or talk to these people or, or do this thing. More often than not, I would say it's probably 80% of the time, the people I mentor, they don't remember to let me know how that conversation with the person I introduced them to went or how, you know, sometimes they do. And that's awesome. But I would say if, if you can get in that practice to the people listening, if you can get in the practice of when people give you ideas around how to improve your career or how to improve your work performance or whatever the thing is, if you can keep them in the loop on how that's going, is it working, is it not working, and continue that conversation, like that's compounding interest. It's one thing to get the advice. It's another thing to keep the conversation going. And I think that's where I've gotten mentorship and mentors to become more stakeholders in my career is by keeping them engaged. It over time makes them more and more vested in my success and my, you know, who I am. Okay, so books. So I, I read, I don't know, 10, 15, 20, 50 books a year, a lot of books. Favorite books. So I'm going to give you five. Well, I'm going to give you four because I already, I already mentioned security metrics. So agents of influence, I think it's funny, like, uh, 
Yes. Oh, and I even said Agents of Influence. I meant Agents of Innocence. Innocence. Agents okay, of Innocence by David Ignatius uh, is probably my favorite book. One of my favorite books. Another one is The Good Spy by Kai Bird. Um, the Book of Honor by Ted Gupp. And Intelligence Driven Incident Response by Scott Roberts and Rebecca Brown. All those books are great. Everyone should go read all of them. But if you're only going to read two, read Agents of Innocence and The Good Spy. Agents of Innocence is written a long time ago, written in the 80s. And both Agents of, Influ <laughs> Agents of Influence, I'm going to keep saying it, Agents of Innocence and The Good Spy are both about this real-life person named Robert Ames. So Robert Ames uh, was a CIA case officer in Beirut. He recruited this guy whose alias was Abu Hassan, who is Yasser Arafat's head of intelligence. And if you would have asked Abu Hassan, are you, you, know, are you an agent for the United States of America? He would say no. Was he sharing intelligence with the United States of America? Yes. Did the Israelis like that or know that? Not really. They kept asking. We would never tell them. Eventually, they killed him. David Ignatius, I'm getting goosebumps talking about it. Um, David Ignatius was a young reporter in Beirut when the bombing of the U.S. Embassy happened in 83. Robert Ames happened to be visiting at that time and was killed, as were like all the officers at CIA there. And yeah, Ignatius had been in the building, had left, was sitting, having lunch when he felt the bombing. And the book, uh, Agents of Innocence, starts out with this character, Faoud, talking on the phone, hearing the bomb blast, feeling the bomb blast. David Ignatius, he had done reporting and had gotten wind of the Red Prince is what the Israelis called him, this Abu Hassan character, who's a real life person. He'd gotten wind of it and had, had written for the Washington Post, kind of this expose in the early 80s before the bombing. So he was he was connected to the story. And then his time in Beirut after after the bombing had occurred, he had all these all these people, all these Arabs who were talking to him very sad at losing all of their friends in this bombing. And he felt like this was a story that had to be told and could only be told through a novel because of other things. And as he wrote it, you know, he had to change some things to make it a real novel to inspire the creative juices and all that. But I would recommend reading Agents of Innocence first. It is a really, really well-written book that touches on true things. And it, it also does a really good job of highlighting the elements of trust and deception and the moral dilemmas that are involved with humans intel human intelligence gathering. And then after you read Agents of, Influ <laughs> Agents of Innocence, <laughs> then read The Good Spy by Kai Bird. So The Good Spy is the biography of Robert Ames, um, written by an excellent biographer, Kai Bird. And that is the actual story of his life and that recruitment. But beyond that, um, you know, everything leading up to him. He was a, a truly remarkable case officer that impacted a lot of people. Also, like the, the way the world works as you read that book, a lot of the names that we know from U.S. foreign policy and, and even news reporting, there were a lot of people in Beirut when that bombing happened in 83, and it impacted a lot of lives. No, that's great. All right. Definitely. We'll have to check those out. And the idea you've given me is once I have enough guests on the podcast, we need to convert this to a book called Agent. <laughs> um, I think that's what's going to have to happen uh, eventually. Well, last question, and this is really to kind of dig into your former life as a financial expert helping with wealth management for, for people. You know, as a as a practitioner, what would be some very basic advice you would give new parents on how to save up for their children? I have a lot of friends who are new parents and, you know, are starting new families. So I think it's timely for them. Uh, would love to hear what type of advice you'd give them. Yeah. So I love I love helping families with financial planning stuff and financial advice. 
I think there's the the side of making sure that they're taken care of and that, you know, college and which college they want to go to and all those things in grad school and whatnot are real choices that they can make, as well as buying a house and things like that. I also think like money habits are really important and understanding money and what money is, is a really good thing. So here's, here's a couple bullets. The first thing is start the 529 plan the day they're born, you know, right away. Uh, most states will give you 50 bucks, 100 bucks. A lot of states will give you tax breaks for starting a state-sponsored 529 plan. Not always. If you, can't, if you can't get a state one, you can always do Fidelity or Vanguard or wherever. So start it early. Give to it what you can to seed it, regardless of what the markets are at. So, you know, right now markets are still high, even though today they're dropping a lot. It's a good day to buy stock. But in 20 years, when that kid's going to college, prices like today's are going to feel really cheap. In 20 years, I would bet serious money the markets are going to be significantly higher. The other thing, though, to factor with, you know, putting money in for a 529 is kids can borrow for college. You can't borrow for your retirement. So for someone who doesn't have as much income, like it's okay for kids to take out loans. It's okay for kids to work through college. That's, you know, for divorced parents, that's a conversation I've had lots of times. And then the other thing with 529s is most 529 plans allow you to create a link where you can share that link with other people and they can make a contribution to the plan. So we all know our kids have a lot of stuff they don't need. And we get given a lot of gifts that just sit in closets or sit on the floor and, and trip over them and get mad. It's a great habit every time a kid has a birthday and every time a holiday approaches to ask for 10, 25, 50, $100, whatever it is, whatever your family and your friends can, can give. It all adds up. I recommend everyone set some, you know, I'm all about incremental stuff. So, you know, do what you can. Maybe it's $50 a paycheck. Maybe it's $200 a paycheck, but do whatever that amount you can is for the kid. And don't worry about overvesting. So one of the great things about 529 plans is you can change the beneficiary later. So if you say you build out a huge 529 plan and the kid doesn't use it all or chooses not to go to college, but you have like three or four kids, you can just keep that plan going and growing. And then when a grandkid decides to go to college, switch the beneficiary, and then all of a sudden you have $500,000 in, in a 529 plan. They can be used for higher ed. Nowadays, I think uh, you can even use a 529 for K through 12 private education and other things. Don't quote me on that, but I think you can. So 529 plans are great. UTMA accounts, not as tax beneficial, but I do find that a lot of people want to help their kids in life before they die. They don't want to just give them all the money at death. And so UTMA account is a way for you to establish a unified trust for minors account for a kid, put some money in it, maybe seed it, and then put a little bit each month with a goal of by the time they're 25 or 30, there's enough money in there for them to make a down payment on a house or something like that. And then lastly, because I'm a book guy, there's this awesome book written by Jolene Godfrey called Raising Financially Fit Kids. And I think she just recently revised it. It's been out a while, but it is the best book on talking with kids about money and, and really even like for, for most people. I find, you know, I would give it to most of my customers who had kids. I still, I have 20 copies sitting in my house. I still give it to people for a, a baby gift. She goes through these 10 money skills. And the money skills are things that really everyone feels like maybe they didn't uh, have as much in life as they wanted when they started making money. And, and so it's, you know, the money skills are how to save, how to keep track of money, how to get paid what you're worth, how to spend wisely, how to talk about money. Like in relationships, that's really important. How to live in a budget, how to invest, how to exercise the entrepreneurial spirit, how to handle credit, and then how to use money to change the world. And that book, her philosophy on what money is, I couldn't agree with more. And it really, and it has exercises for different age groups and different personality types with money. 
it is a very useful book and well worth the read and reread. Fantastic. Quiz, thank you so much. That's some great advice and a great way to wrap up um, our episode. It's truly been a pleasure and I don't consider myself to be very financially savvy. So don't be surprised if I call you one day to get some advice and guidance. Uh, really appreciate it. Hope to meet you in person really soon. I look forward to it. Perfect. Sounds good. Thanks, Quiz. Talk soon. Thank you. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence.